0: like there was never an attitude of, well, that's not something we can do. It was just, well, we've never done this before. How will we do it It was more of the thing. So we weren't afraid to take on new challenges and and have new experiences. So I think that kind of helped lead towards moving up in the world of visual effects because visual effects is always about trying to create that next big spectacle and that, that new thing that someone's never seen. So you have to be able to look at a line in a script or a storyboard and visualize what that final product would look like and then sort of connect the dots for your team of how you're going to get from here to there to finish that shot.
1: Hi, welcome to Best in Fest and I'm Leslie Lapage, the director of the La Femme National Film Festival and this is a podcast for people who are interested in advancing their career in television and film and learning all the dirty little secrets. On Making Hollywood Tick Today I am super super happy To have on um, the podcast Dave Asling Who is an amazing Creative director and owner At Creation Consultants Inc A visual effects company Specializing in the creation of miniature effects And specialty props For film and television, episodic television And commercial advertising He's got over 30 years experience He has contributed To nominated and awarded winning films and visual effects, winning uh, awards in the Academy, Emmys, Gemini Awards, he's been featured in markets across North America, and some of his amazing contributions in film and television is Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief, which frankly is my son's favorite, Uh, Top Gun Maverick, which I can't wait to see, The Mandalorian, which my son and I have seen every episode, The Laundromat, Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore, Fringe, Base Motel, Smallville, Welcome to uh marwin Star wars obi-wan interstellar and the list oh my gosh goes on welcome dave <laughs> thanks for
0: having
1: me not a problem you know it's it's wacky because you know people think that uh, you know when somebody goes into the film industry they're their directive right their their passion is either in writing or directing right that's like the big two iconic land posts so to speak and they forget there's all these other people that put together the films. And, and so you are and have made your life's passion uh, this visual effects and specializing in miniatures. And so how did you even get into this? What was your calling?
0: <laughs> well, actually, I, I never planned to be in film at all. I went to school to be an architect, and that was the, the path I was on, um, and when I graduated from, uh, from college, um, one of the first jobs you get when you, when you go to a firm is building study models and things like that. And I had always built models as a hobby as a kid, and so I kind of fell into that. And I quickly realized that it was going to be years and years and years before they let me do anything creative on my own, that I would always just be doing cleanup drawings or building somebody else's thing. And... And that wasn't going to work for me, so I um, I also found that there were architectural companies in town that just built models, and I thought, well, that's cool. I could I could build models, and I could use my education, but do something fun. But then I quickly realized that you're still just building somebody else's work. Um, so one of the things that happens with with the architectural industry and the film industry is there are a lot of freelance people, and so. People move from shop to shop, and I met a lot of different model makers that way, and I got a call one weekend from a friend of mine saying, hey, we've got this project, it's a real rush, Um, can you come down, help us out over the weekend, get this thing done, and I went down and they were working on a film, and I didn't know there was really a film industry in Toronto that was doing visual effects, and i was floored so i thought well this is this is great you know we were all being incredibly creative and everybody was contributing to these ideas of how we were going to do this thing and i loved it and i i quit my job at the architectural place and i i went i went back to this this small visual effects company and i worked there for free just to get my foot in the door for a while and and eventually kind of went from there
1: and, and you got bit by the bug
0: oh absolutely yeah well i had no idea that that you could do visual effects work in canada i thought that that it was something that happened to ha- had to happen in los angeles or london or one of the big centers like that and and i just sort of stumbled into this small visual effects company where everybody did everything and it was it was an amazing experience
1: well that's interesting because When you got your foot in the door in Canada, that's when the film industry started shifting over and Canada started picking up a lot more films. So the timing was just perfect.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, There was a lot of that kind of work happening in Canada. Uh, In Toronto and in Vancouver, certainly there was a lot of episodic stuff being done. There was a lot of M.O.W. type work happening. And there was a lot of um, science fiction and fantasy work that seemed to be uh, and heading up towards Canada, um, which was great for me because that played right into the kind of work that I wanted to do.
1: Well, then, so you so you were there, uh, uh, really working on these miniatures. How did um, you start? I guess taking over more of the supervisory position, and and tell people listening what an actual supervisor does in visual effects and effects in general
0: for me it was it was a very much a sort of a natural evolution from being you know the guy who came to the door and worked for free for a little while to to you know being given key roles on projects to running projects to being on the board of directors of the company to going off and form on my own um it it there wasn't really um, sort of a planned path for me that way. I, it just kind of happened that more and more projects started getting pushed my way. Um, and I was happy to take them on. I, I didn't have a, um, like there was never a, a, an attitude of, well, that's not something we can do. It was just, well, we've never done this before. How will we do it? it was more of the thing. So we weren't afraid to take on new challenges and and have new experiences. So, I think that kind of helped lead towards moving up in the world of visual effects because visual effects is always about trying to create that next big spectacle and that that new thing that someone's never seen. So you have to be able to look at a line in a script or a storyboard and visualize what that final product would look like and then sort of connect the dots for your team of how you're going to get from here to there to finish that shot.
1: Well, working with directors, let's say you've worked, you've been, um, you've had the the wonderful uh, career opportunity to work with some amazing directors. And you've also started off with some that, you know, were also growing up through the ranks, you know, that may not have been so fluent, you know, um, experienced, let's say. How do you Did you take the lead? How did you work with them in maybe facilitating the vision that they weren't so
0: clear on? Well, I think with our particular niche of the industry, I don't really expect my clients to know exactly what it is that they want from us when they come in the door. Um, They'll often have a a great idea of, of what it is that they're after, but they won't have any idea of how that would actually be achieved. And really, it's just up to myself and my team to to try to fulfill that director's vision in the best possible way for him in a way that works within the budget constraints of the project and, and within the story they're trying to tell. So um, it's, it's very collaborative. Um, when I'm working with a director, they're very often, in my experience, at least has been very much of a, a, um, a back and forth and, and not necessarily that sort of strict, structured hierarchy that I was expecting when I started working with people of, of higher calibers. They, they are very open to ideas, at least the directors that I've worked with, and and very happy to, to hand off to people that they trust a sequence or a design or an idea so that they don't have to worry about that thing. They just know that it's going to get handled well, and you just keep touching base and make sure they're happy with the direction you're going.
1: What's your first step when you when you get that script, when you get that, let's say, that kernel of an idea from them, what's your process? How do you take it to your team?
0: Well, for me, um, it it, it really is about visualization. I have to be able to imagine what that final shot is going to be able to look like in my head before I can do anything else. And usually that happens pretty quickly. Usually it's, it's somebody will say, well, we need you know, an airplane to crash or a a building to blow up or something like that. And you'll, you'll immediately think of references that you've seen in the past or projects that you've worked on before that had similar aspects. And you'll kind of build off of that. Sometimes it's, it's, you know, doing something again, that's never been done before. And so you, you have to really get much more sort of into your own imagination of how that problem is going to get solved. But once you've, once you've visualized it, every job kind of becomes a pattern of of, all right I've, I've mapped it out of my head now I've got to make a simple computer model that I can use to show to the client to show them what I'm thinking of if they sign off on that then it's taking that to my team and expanding on that very basic thing and breaking it out into different elements that different members of the team can work on independently. Um, it, it, there is kind of a, a repeating structure to it of, of sort of finding out what is there after, how much time they have, and then offering them different options that will fit within that time. Because sometimes they'll say, well, here's this amazing idea we have, and it is a tremendous idea, but they've got you know six days to pull it off and it's a three month job. So you have to be able to present some other option for them that will make them equally happy.
1: Right, right. Well, how often do they come to you with those last minute um, uh, issues, last minute problems, throwing it in your lap going, this, do this.
0: In the the 33 or 34 years I've been doing now, uh there have been two projects that I've worked on where I've thought I had the right amount of time and the right budget and everything I needed to do that job start to finish. Every other project has had some element of the unknown in it where it was a last-minute change or or there was just no I've worked on I don't know how many pictures were. You're in the middle of building what you're building, and they haven't written the third act of the project yet. So you're you're trying to anticipate where things might go. It's there's an awful lot of last minute stuff. This year has been great for that, if you want to call it great, um, with last minute projects coming in where you had, you know, again, you know, a week and a half or two weeks to do what should have been really a 12 week job, uh, and you just you power through and you find more economical solutions or more, more expedient solutions, or you find compromises that. The, the creative team can, can uh, live with, basically, that still get the story that they want, but does it in a way that is actually achievable in the time that they have.
1: Well, that, that's, that's interesting because, you know, out of, out of your, your full gamut of years, only having that perfect storm, you know, the time, the money, and, and the liberty to do everything has been so, so uniquely small, which kind of <laughs> which kind of just says, you know, every time we're taking it on, there's always a possibility of a train wreck that we make go right, you know?
0: <laughs> exactly. when when we did uh, welcome to Marwin with uh, Robert Zemeckis a few years ago, we had to create these these figures that were key parts of the film. They were not just physical props, but they also became, uh, the basis of all the digital action in the, in the movie was created from the miniatures and props that we built. They were all um, scanned and went through photogrammetry and were used to create those elements. And so we had to create from scratch um, these these fully posable dolls that could achieve any position that a human could achieve. At least that was the, the goal. We never actually got that far. But we had to do it in a very brief amount of time. Uh, we had 11 weeks from the time the project was awarded to the time we were supposed to fly it to set. And that that time got trimmed down to a little over 18 days to get a working prototype to London so the costume department could start working with them. Now, when we went up to Vancouver, uh, we met with, uh, you know, when we were getting closer to shooting, we, went, we met with um, the fellow who had been hired to actually... Uh, work with the actors in posing the figures and he came from a, a toy manufacturing background and he asked when we had started on the project and I said oh it was May 12th and he said May 12th last year and I went no May 12th about seven weeks ago and he said well it usually takes about a year and a half to get to the point we were at when we went to Vancouver um, and you know we just Basically not knowing that it would take a year and a half, we went, well, how do we get this done in the amount of time we've got? And again, you just kind of power through.
1: It's, it's funny that you say power through it because, um, you know, when Disney's making animation, their, their normal workday is 16-hour days. The animators are working 16-hour days, and that's for years, right, to get their animation films done. So, when you guys are powering through it, I'm assuming that you are, you are working those crazy 16 hour production days. And, and within that, you have, uh, I'm assuming, your specialty guys, guys that, that, or gals that just do this one thing. Can you talk us through kind of how you deal with those components?
0: Well, to be honest, I've tried to run a company that runs on a bit more civilized hours. We tend to do eight hour days normally. 10-hour days when things are a little tight, and then we get into 12s when you've got a real push going. Um, but I never have my team do the things that I used to have to do when I was coming up. Like we used to do all-nighters all the time when I was younger. And that's no fun for anybody, and, and mistakes happen and injuries happen, and you don't want to put your team in that position. So I, I never ask the people who work for me to do the kind of hours that, that I do. But as the company owner, I... I'm typically here at least six days a week. and you know you know during a normal job, I'm here 10 hours a day during a push, I'll be here at 14, 16. Um, when we were doing one of our Super Bowl commercials earlier this year, um, I did 97 hours in, I think it was six and a half days here at, this, at the studio and then hopped on a plane and flew to Vancouver to film it. So it was you know you, you when I say you push through, Um, as a team, everybody pushes through, but as the owner, you kind of have to take on more of that yourself than you would ask somebody to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are definitely some long days as far as, as the type of people that we hire, you mentioned, you know, specialized people. What I actually look for are generalists. I like artists who, who don't specialize in any one particular skill Um, the problem with that, and I have hired generalists in the past who've been great artists, and they're great at that one thing, but I can't then have them do something else. So when we were doing a project a little while ago, we had some specialty molds that had to be made, and I hired somebody who could make those molds. And they were excellent at doing those molds, but they couldn't make the box that the mold went into. They couldn't cut a piece of wood on the table saw. They couldn't do anything that involved power tools. They could just do this one thing. And they were excellent at that, but as an employee for me, they weren't um, someone who I could continue to keep busy because that one specialized skill set doesn't come up every job.
1: So if you're hiring uh, these general, really talented, but general artists, um, do you see that maybe the industry is leaning more towards the special, specialty, um, special artists that bring just that specialty to it? Or do you see that maybe the industry is starting to conform to your way of, of thinking?
0: I would like it if they would conform my way because I think it would be better for all of the artists overall. But it really is, from a, from a company perspective, it makes more sense for a, a company or a production to say, here's this task you do and that's all you do. And they can have them do that you know, day after day after day. So if they're working in a digital medium, you're the guy who's going to be removing shadows or you're the guy who's going to be, you know, adding fog effects or doing whatever it is. And that's all you do. And for their pipeline, they know that that person's going to be in that chair doing just that one thing. But that's a terrible way to spend your career. As far as I'm concerned, just doing that one thing all the time. Um, I like to give people more opportunity to, to spread out a little bit. So, um, I had a fellow who came in a couple of years ago who was a welder and he loved to weld and he was great at welding and that's all he did, but he wanted to try other things. And because he brought that skill that I needed at the time, I was happy to allow him to to try other tools, other tasks within the company to see if there was something else that, that he could apply himself to. And it turned out he was a wonderful painter and he really enjoyed that. And then from painting, he went into, you know, uh, carpentry, and then he went into doing fine furniture and he went off in a totally different career and got out of film. but he might not have done that if he worked at another company that said This is all you do. He would not have discovered that that other thing that he was really good at for me it's it's more about making sure that that the people that I'm working with get along and and have the skills that that they need to to have here at the company so By hiring generalists, they all have sort of similar backgrounds they're coming from, from either visual effects work or prop work or stop motion animation um, or sculpting, that kind of thing. Um, And so they all have sort of very similar skill sets and they will have one particular strength that might dominate more than the other, but they can all sort of move between tasks.
1: Well let's let's uh, talk about some of the really interesting films that you've had the you've contributed to such as uh let's talk about Interstellar. What what was the contribution in, in Interstellar? What was that like uh uh building uh that particular visual effect slash props
0: for that. With Interstellar, that's actually an interesting one because I came into that a bit late. Um, When I first came down to um, Los Angeles in 2013, I think, um, there was a, a limited window where, you know, I wasn't allowed to work while I was here. We had to get paperwork all finished. But friends of mine at New Deal Studios were doing that project and asked if I would come on board and, you know, sort of join the team. And I couldn't, unfortunately, because... Legally, I wasn't allowed to work yet. But when I was, by the time I finally came on board, we were in we were in the shooting stage. So for me on Interstellar, it was more um, managing a small crew that was working on very specific parts of that build. Uh, I didn't have the same sort of creative input that I would have had on other projects uh, because that was pretty far down the road before I came on board. Um, that was uh, Ian Hunter, um, who was the... Um, uh, Creative director at New Deal as well uh, was the lead on that project, and uh, he's a tremendous guy to work with. Um, and um, he had to come up with some really innovative ways to to present uh, Christopher Nolan's ideas and get them onto the screen. Um, and obviously, it all worked out really well for uh, for the team.
1: Well, let's jump a little bit ahead to you know some of your latest uh, work. Let's talk about uh, the Mandalorian. You know, huge success. Um, very interesting set design, visual effects. You know, it's it's just wonderfully put together, especially under the confines of the quickness that it had to be done under because it's television, which a little faster than than film,
0: right? Well, there's there's a niceness to working on television that I enjoy because it is that I I like the fast turnaround. I like Having a project that comes in and having, uh, you know, a month or five weeks to work on it, and then starting the next thing. Um, with the Mandalorian, that was kind of interesting because when I got the call, I didn't actually know that I was being asked to come work on a Star Wars project. I just got a call one day saying, "We've got this new project coming up, and we think miniatures would be well suited to the kind of work we want to do. And would you be interested in having a meeting with us?" And so I said, "Sure, of course. That would be that would be great fun." So. Uh, and, and you know I'm always happy to talk to somebody who wants to use miniatures and visual effects because it's it's you know harder and harder to get people to go that route. Um, so I went down and and we had a meeting down at their their offices and they were just kind of getting set up at that point. And so the production designer and I sat down and um, and I'm sitting in the office and I'm looking at the walls and I'm going, huh, that's Luke Skywalker in that screen grab over there, and huh, that's that's a lightsaber sitting on the table there. And that's a speeder bike over there. And I, and I'm like, this is a Star Wars thing. Like I had, I had no idea, no idea at all. And so I, of course was just thrilled because it was one of those bucket list kind of things for me to have an opportunity to work on a Star Wars project after having, you know, growing up trying to emulate that work when I was a kid and, and so it was. It was just a tremendous feeling to, to be sitting in that room, and just out of the blue, finding myself there. Um, and the technology that they wanted to use was something that I had been reading about, but hadn't really had direct experience myself. And that was filming with these giant LED screens. And that's where they wanted to use our work. And that idea really appealed to me because it's it's something that we always try to do is to to keep our sort of old school way of doing things in front of modern visual effects uh, producers and supervisors eyes as something that they can utilize still. So with the Mandalorian, they had a couple of different things they were looking for. They had environments that, that did not exist that they wanted to create that they could use as backgrounds for certain scenes. And they had architecture that they wanted to create as well. And so we started, with, we started with landscapes and they provided a bunch of different reference pictures and we sculpted up these giant uh, plaster and styrofoam uh, canyons that, that were uh, then scanned and went through photogrammetry to, to be stitched together and mapped onto simple uh, digital architecture to create environments for the second episode where the Mandalorian is, is having a, he gets ambushed inside a canyon and that whole background was filmed in front of the the LED volume with a very simple set, basically dressed onto the floor of sand and mud and some rock outcroppings. Um, and then the second build we did for them was, um, was a, an interior set. And we were asked to build this, this, um, it was, it was called a common hut and it was based on, uh, uh, sort of, a uh, like a, Uh, sort of like a a smokehouse or a lodge that you would find in a tribal community in North America. And so um, we had some basic sketches from the art department and then we, we basically went ahead and designed up this, this building sticking as close as we could to what they provided, but, but really having to sort of flesh it out because they had so many things on their plate, they hadn't provided a ton of reference for us. Um, So with that building, we, we basically built this, this, what would be a massive uh, wooden structure when we built it in layers so it could be pulled apart and scanned and go through photogrammetry and then it was projected onto the led volume again and they were using it for filming live action so instead of being a post-production process our work had become pre-production where all of the miniatures led what the actual set pieces would look like when they were built so when we were building the, the log walls and, and wooden structures and lashings to create the miniature, they were then looking at that and going, okay, here's what the physical set needs to look like as opposed to working the other way around. Um, but you also had this, this ability to take uh, what wasn't a very big miniature and present it as this 70-foot wide structure in behind the actors and have it hold up. One of, the, one of the issues that you run into with miniatures, of course, is, is making them look real when you're filming them. And, and a skillful DP can work magic, but you know, sometimes you'll find that things just don't quite look as believable and solid as you want them to. And with the work we were doing on The Mandalorian, when you looked at the screen, you didn't realize that you were looking at the miniature because of the, the scanning process and the photogrammetry process that they'd used to create the, the set and project it you felt like you were looking at a real room your brain just believed that you were seeing a real thing
1: mm-hmm. well it's interesting that you point that out because that's that's really the gold standard <laughs> is is it, it is working with disney um across the board but especially when they are the forerunner of creating a lot of this new technology this new technology that hasn't really been utilized in the way that they're trying to make it work. They're, they're, they're bending the world to their needs, not the other way around.
0: Uh, uh, well, the the technology that they were using, the, the volume, uh, I think it has a different name that they're using now, but at the time they were calling it the volume, which was this you know massive curved LED screen. Um, I remember the first time I walked on set, they were setting up what ended up being the first shot in episode one, season one of The Mandalorian, and they hadn't really you know, worked out exactly what that was going to look like. But I happened to walk onto the set in exactly the right position to really be sort of blown away by it. Because I came into set and then turned and ended up standing behind camera, about 20 feet behind camera, and looking squarely into the center of the volume. And the volume was framed by blackout curtains, top and bottom and to the sides. And it felt like I was looking out a window. And I'm, I'm on set, and this screen is probably 40 feet away from me, maybe 50 feet away from me. And to my naked eye, it looked completely real and completely believable. And as soon as I saw that in person, I went, well, this is where production is going. This is something that I really want to be a part of, is getting our work into this virtual uh, stream. Um, it, because it, just, it, it made so much more sense as soon as I saw it, the economies of it the the flexibility that it gave directors one of the things that that has always been called out as a limitation of working with miniatures is that you you don't get do-overs you know when we, whenever we build a miniature for a physical effect if we're knocking something down or blowing it up or crashing it we build it in triplicate so that if we don't get what we want on the first take we we we've got takes 2 and 3 in our back pocket just in case we need them and with with virtual production they can take our miniature put it into a digital pipeline that that digital visual effects houses and vi- visual effects supervisors who come up from the digital world are comfortable with, and then they can, they can manipulate on the fly. So when I was watching them set up this shot, the first time I saw the shot, the Mandalorian is standing on a pier and there's, you know, gray clouds rolling across the sky and oceans crashing and, and you know, waves coming in and they're throwing buckets of snow in from the side. And then they swapped it out to make it a frozen lake and see how that looked. In the moment, right then, they were like, okay, let's try ice and see what that looks like. And to have that flexibility, just to be able to give a director that leeway is something that in earlier days of shooting miniatures, you wouldn't be able to do. You were saying, well, here's the angle that they've shot the plate at, here's what we have to match to, here's the lighting we have to match to, here's what we have to do within the takes that we've got, as opposed to being able to say, well, here's this element that they can now use as they want to. So they can take this building that we've built or this spaceship or, or this landscape or whatever it is, and they can manipulate it however they want to and put it on screen and get instant feedback to say, yeah, this I like, or let's, you know, shift this element over here and give the director the freedom to, to adjust on the fly, but still have that feedback as if he's working on a real set and get real lighting information and, and, allow the actors to interact with something that appears to be there.
1: Okay, so what this does is it really lends itself to the filmmakers having access to worlds that m- may not have been cost-effective or within their budget before that this new technology allows.
0: Exactly. Um, it, it, it gives them production value that they could not buy before, that now you can, you can have, I wouldn't say you know, economically, it still certainly is a, an expensive and developing process, but it puts it within range. It makes it something viable. You can, you can do um, episodic series work where you happen to have, say you've got a set and you have a view that you really want to have outside that set window. And that view is, let's say it's you know, like a downtown LA skyline. You can have that on your screen outside the window and have full control over what that lighting is going to look like whenever you're shooting so it, it it allows you a lot more freedom within your shooting schedule to say well we're going to do the you know we've got to do the sunset shot at you know two in the afternoon and you 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 set your screen to what you want and you go ahead and you shoot those shots and you're not waiting for golden hour you're not waiting for that perfect moment and you've got that great production value of this tremendous skyline but you're in a soundstage in burbank
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and really that just opens up just It just really opens up the budgetary elements that uh, were restrictions before, which is kind of sexy, you know, looking at it. (laughs) Um, But now let's talk, let's talk about, um, let's talk about Top Gun Maverick. So, yeah. (laughs) I can't. Oh, no, you can't. Okay. How about, (laughs) (laughs) because it hasn't, it hasn't gone out yet.
0: No, no, I can't do that. Sorry. Um, same thing, we've got, uh, we've got Pinocchio coming out uh, in September, I believe, where we had an opportunity to work with Robert Zemeckis again. Um, and what I can say is that it was a very similar process to um, when we did Marwin, where um, we created real characters for the show, but those characters are also going to go through photogrammetry and 3D scanning so that they can create the, the animated digital version of that character. Um, very, very similar process and obviously great working with Robert Zemeckis again on that project. Um, and he's a wonderful director to work with because he loves working with cutting edge technology and pushing the envelope as much as he can to throw at a bunch of overused uh, expressions. But, um, you know, with, with Bob, when you walk into his office, um, in Carpinteria, he's got big screens on the wall of his lobby that he set up so that he can figure out shots in his lobby of what he's going to you know what's going to be built on set in six months time he can go in with a virtual camera and go well here's where the camera move is going to be and he's thinking all of these things through in virtual space all the time like he's really embraced the idea of virtual production as well
1: right let's talk a little bit uh, in in different techniques of of directors you know uh, uh zemeckis wants to do a lot of that pre-work so he can see visually where he's going to end up, you know, so that he can morph his mind accordingly. Um, some directors don't like to do that. Can you talk about um, just different techniques of the directors you've worked with?
0: Bob is a great example of, of somebody who, who does pre-plan. Um, he's, he's very thoughtful as a filmmaker, but he's also very um, technical and and really wants to work in the most efficient way possible, which is I, I think why he's embraced virtual production so strongly, um, because he he does map out everything very um, you know very thoroughly when he's planning a shot. Um, but he's also he's great to collaborate with because you know we'll be working when we were doing Marwan, we would literally be having the dolls sort of moving around, and and he would be making up dialogue as we were showing him sets. And, and, you know, so we're showing him the town of Marwin that we built as a miniature and he's, and he's like, well, wouldn't it be great if we had the camera down here and we had the doll up here and we had, you know, we did this line of dialogue and he would, he would toss up two or three different lines of dialogue that he came up with when he was looking at the physical set. So, you know, he's, he's definitely someone who I think has, has his, his, uh, you know, hands in both sides of that, where he's, He's strongly into digital, but also as as a filmmaker, he knows the value of having something tangible in front of you, and the way that that will help generate ideas for you when you're seeing it, you know, under real lighting conditions, and and you know, there with your own eye looking at it. Um, other directors that I've worked with definitely have very specific ideas of what they want, and they are more challenging to work with. I think because it's often what they want isn't something that they can have for the budget that they have or within the time frame that they have. And so you, you have to be much more diplomatic about how you present alternative ideas to the idea that they've had in their head for the last however many months or years they've been thinking about making this movie. Um, you know, If they've got that, that one shot that they really want to have and it turns out that that's not something that they can quite get the way that they wanted to have it, there's there's a lot of 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 sort of back and forth of of steering to get them to a place where you can get them something that really works for them and have it be something that they feel like they've had the major hand in in creating that new idea and not just something where you've gone and said well no you can't have that but here's this thing I've got that you can do because nobody wants that nobody likes absolutes
1: right of course they they, they want to try and get as close to that vision as humanly possible and
0: absolutely and that's that's what we're always trying to achieve is is to get as much of what the director wants or what the creative producer or much it's the visual effects producer or supervisor wants to have on screen we're trying to get as much as we can in camera for them to make the post process as simple as possible for them as, as well
1: so are you ever going to, since you've had such a stellar career and you have many, many, many more years left in your life and your career to do, are you ever putting your toe back into architecture? Are you, do you have a building that you wish at some point in time you're going to build?
0: Well, you know, I, I did design a, a few um, homes when I was younger that I always planned to build. Um, you know, when I got old enough with enough money to do it, but, um, I still enjoy architecture, but I've, I've done enough, like even just home renovation on my own that I'm kind of like, you know what? I'm, I'm done there. That's, that's, that's hard work. I don't want to do that.
1: (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Um, what's a bit of advice that you can give to a young visual effects person coming up the ranks that you can share?
0: Don't have blinders on. Don't, don't think that because that's the tool you know, that's the only tool in the box. Um, one thing that I think gives us uh, strength as a company is that I will never go to a client and say, well, this is the only way you can do this. If someone brings me a problem and solving it with, with our particular tool set isn't the way to do it, I'll steer them in the right direction towards uh, the solution that they need to have. So if that means... It needs to have digital a digital part to it, or or it needs to be entirely digital. I'll say, you know what? Love that you brought this to us, but this isn't really the way you want to solve this problem. Um, you need to be you need to be listening to your client and to you know whether your client is the director or the the senior production designer or producer or whoever that is. You you need to try to facilitate what their dream is, not get your dream on screen. So, you know, it's 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 being flexible and and, you know, doing what you can to help them achieve what it is that they want to achieve, because ultimately it it does end up being everybody's thing on screen anyway. Like when when somebody wins the Academy Award for visual effects, I don't think anybody in the room goes, oh, that person did everything. There's so many people involved with that process. And it's unfortunate that only three or four people get to go up on stage. But there are hundreds and hundreds of people involved in creating the visual effects that we see on screen. Um, and, you know, everybody, I think, starts as, unfortunately, you know, in today's environment, at least, you know, somebody behind a box, sitting at a desk, doing one tedious task after another. But it doesn't stay there. That's that's just where you start. Um, it's it's being willing to, you know, take on new challenges and, and be creative and speak up. And don't be afraid to be the person who says, well, how about if we did this new thing this way and see what happens? You know, the worst that happens is is somebody says no, but maybe they say yes. Maybe they like your idea and that becomes some you know new thing.
1: What, last question. What is a dirty little secret that you wish somebody had told you that you have learned along your travels?
0: Gosh, that's a tough one. Um... <laughs> I will. I don't know about dirty little secrets. I will say one thing that, as a supervisor or or um, company, um, false deadlines are something that that nobody wants to have given to them. So, if you're ever in a position to give somebody a you know bring somebody a job and tell them when it's due, make sure that that's an, a real hard date that they're aiming towards. Because it's there's nothing more frustrating being, than being told that a job is due in 10 weeks and finding out they don't need it for 14. But you've put in tons of overtime and worked weekends and and you know done everything you can to get it done in that 10 weeks. Um not necessarily a dirty little secret, more of a uh pet peeve.
1: Fair enough. Shout out for all those listening um your company website. So if they want to get a hold of you and either apply or hire, they know where to go.
0: So yes, the company website is uh www.creation-consultants.com there's a an info link there and um a way to reach out and contact me directly um we get uh people reaching out all the time who who want to be interns who want to come in and work for free to get their foot in the door the way i did and i always say no we we don't do that i shouldn't have done that don't work for anybody who says you can work for me for free um but absolutely, I want to meet new artists all the time. I want to have an opportunity to expand the, the pool of people that I can bring in to be part of the team. Um, it's, it's a great creative industry and, and it is a fluid industry where people move from company to company all the time. So, you know, we may have a job come up where the team that I have in place may need to be augmented or that particular skill set that I need for that one job isn't there and we have to bring somebody else in. So, yeah, it's always good to know new people.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on Best in Fest. And for all those that want to see the video component, go on to La Femme uh, Film Festival uh, YouTube channel. You can see it there, or uh, you can listen to the podcast on all the platforms uh, across the world. Make sure that you rate us and send shout out a DM to us so we uh, can bring on people that you want to hear about. Dave, thank you so much. Um, you've been listening to Dave Asling on Best at Fest.